Hacienda. Oh, the devil will he take you? Hmm? Is that what you're just going to do for an hour? Yes. Hello, Grumsworth. Oh, hello, Burlock. And welcome to all of you, our proud listeners of the preamble. Your every so often digest of all things hobby is here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, today we're going to be bringing you um, a plethora of subjects. We're going to be opening up the dusty old ragged tomes that are our hobby journal. Uh, we're going to be talking very sadly about system death, engine kill, burlock. Sad, sad times, but interesting ones, yeah? And then we're going to follow a I think we'll follow a large arachnid. How about that, Burlock? What do you say to that? <laughs> yeah. Sounds excellent, yes. Interesting times indeed, as Pratchett said. And bearing that in mind, all those singular moments, this week, what has happened in your world of hobby, Burlock? What have those moments brought you this week? Actually, I've, I've, spent, I've been spending a little bit of money. Uh, what? I know. If it's, not, if it's not hobby supplies, I'm very rarely spending money. But um, actually, I, I picked up a couple of the uh, quite quite recently released, I think, Ford World squats. Oh yes. Yeah. There's the uh, the ammo um, ammo carrier, jack. The ammo jack. That's the guy. And yeah. there was the other the other one they released as well. Two uh, two of the Ford World squats, and they're they're really nice models. I mean, Ford World do a lot of really good stuff. Um, um, but these ones, they 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 spoke to me, Grumsworth. They did. Did they? But only because um, I'm in I'm in a little bit of squat mode actually, and I think it's due to one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, that'll happen. I went up into my um, box laden attic, and um, and had a, had a route through some of my collection, and uh, mm. I thought, oh, I'm gonna see where my squats are because I've got a bunch of old squats sitting around, not doing a lot. And uh, got them out on the table, looked at them all, and they were resplendent in uh, a paint job that I'd given them probably somewhere in the mid-90s. So not, not um, my proudest moment paint-wise. So I uh, cleaned a lot of them up. Um, a lot of yeah. them saw some, some of the, uh, the paint stripper. Okay. Um, some of the uh, plastic parts, I use the, um, the ultrasonic cleaner to get them nice and clean. Otherwise, it's usually the trusty nitromores. Highly toxic. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, very, very toxic, the old nitromores, you know. But that green can, that's, that's been the saving grace of many a bedraggled old miniature bought off eBay, found in your box from the late 90s, that sort of thing. You know, yeah. it's useful stuff. I purchased um, some of these new squats to go with my old ones. And I actually managed to get um, a few of the old models for a fairly good price to add to my existing little force that I had I'd, I'd accrued. So um, I've been building um some uh, some of the old stuff and some of the new forge world stuff as well i've uh, worked on one of the old thud guns which is really lovely cool. that's sort of a, a sort of side project that's going to amble along slowly as i get some other bits and pieces done um, but i was uh, pleased to have a um, a little bit of a change in direction um, with some new miniatures although i'm working on my chaos dwarves the miniatures are so much bigger than the squats even though they're both dwarves <laughs> it's that it's it's the hat though, isn't it? It's the Cursed hat. dwarfs. It's yeah, the hat that gives them all their height. So yeah, so I've been um, been in full on nineties dwarf mode, 
um, for a long while now, but the squats are a nice change of pace. Aside from that, um, mm. I've been um, playtesting uh, a friend of mine's roleplay game that he's made. Yes. And how has that gone? It's gone really well. It's been um, good to look at a system in its infancy and okay. play, yeah. play through the, uh, the, the first stages of the game, learn some of the mechanics. When, you, when you're reading the book through and, and you're analysing it, you can take in only so much. I think you need to be able to play a game. That's why a lot of games developers these days um, go to a lot of big conventions, you know, and have playtest tables and they will playtest for a long time, um, which is worth it, I think, um, given that some of the problems we encountered, this ability might be a little bit overpowered here. That little bit there might need a little bit of a buff. So there are not necessarily balancing things because I don't think all games need to be precisely balanced like a you know a well-oiled cogitator but I, I agree yeah yeah but i do think there needs to be a little bit of control just so that nothing is the obvious meta choice so we uh, we gladly encountered some of those moments where it was actually yeah that needs to be a little bit detuned that needs to be okay that needs to be changed perhaps a bit there so it was really useful for us as players to be able to contribute to that sort of play test um, situation um, but also it was really good for, for our friend there, Ruben. Ruben, Ruben. Uh, he's a good lad. Oh, Ruben. He's been working very, very hard to um, put this game together. Sort of sci-fi kind of uh, utopian future setting, which is really nice and refreshing to see, which yeah. uh, isn't the dystopian norm that a lot of futuristic sci-fi games tend to, tend to revolve around. So, yeah, that was really nice for him to be able to look at it from... A creator's perspective i think and see us all playing this game that he'd made from from nothing built up to this 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 game that was actually for a first run first proper run pretty um, good pretty good yeah we were yeah. all really really pleased all the players um came away from it feeling good about the game feeling good that we could have contributed to its um to its development yeah lovely that's a nice feeling isn't it mm. when you when i've had a similar experience when you've sat in on other people's projects like that and you've played through the game you've rolled some dice you've maybe moved some proxy models around this sort of thing mm -hmm. and then at the end they say how did you find it i'm really keen to know what you thought of it and then when you give them your sort of breakdown that play testing it, it is essentially even if you're creating an unbalanced sort of wonky but very enjoyable game it must be nice to have that feedback to go, okay, so this portion enjoyed these bits and these bits and these bits, completely going to write this bit out and I'm going to push this bit up maybe. Or you just go, listen, like I love this bit about this game. The players all hated it. I'm sticking with it. That's right. Sometimes you've got to stick to yeah. guns. Yeah. You know, when yeah. you've got a vision, sometimes you just got to run with it. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be lovely to see, see how it develops from here. And um, if we get a chance to play a game, and um, Grumsworth, yourself, you must have been up to something a little, you know, interesting this week. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I've been up to some interesting stuff and I've been up to some interesting hobby stuff as well. Oh, so it's been, yeah, it's been a diverse bag, right? Um, hobby wise, we're now getting into the last leg. Like this is, we're so close to the completing the entirety of my Necromunda gang. The fabled now many mentioned knights of doghead yeah. right so i know <laughs> i'm gonna next time you any of you find people listen to or watch this the preamble you'll find that i've completely scrapped the name i'll have changed loads of things maybe they'll need a repaint at that point oh no <laughs> who knows right 
this week I've just been putting the finishing touches um, to the gang leader, uh, Saint Biff. If you're viewing this with your eyeballs there, rather than just listening with your ears, we'll throw up some pictures of him there. So he's kind of about halfway through, I reckon. There's some shading still to go in on him. Um, he's headless, sadly. Yeah, headless Biff. That's what they <laughs> will be calling him. Once that first bolt round flies his way, I'm oh, sure. No. And, you know, then I'll retire the gang. Whatever. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so he still needs his head putting on. He's got some shading to go in. He's a little bit ornate compared to some of the other members of his gang. As a but... leader, though, he should be, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I've taken a little bit of extra time on him um, to hit all of his details with the same love and attention. You know, he's got this big sort of necklace type job hanging around with the noose around his throat. Um, it's got some oddments, so I took out, I used some some different, a few different colours in there. You'll be able to see it in the completed model. Um, to bring out that, he's kind of, his little string of holy relics that he's gathered up, of which mm. the rest of the knights are deeply envious. Um, the great cog on the top of his two-handed hammer there, that's going to have a separate sort of paint treatment compared to anything else in the gang as well. I like the idea that this is one of his most holy relics. Mm. So this great cog, he's going to have whitewashed in some sort of foul underhive line. Um, <laughs> better that it might smite the unclean, you see. He's got his little hand flamer there. Um, which are picked out in some different colours as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just basically just need to do his base, a fresh head, and we'll mm. see what happens. So this time next week, actually, I will have completed this task. Um, and then I, I may well suffer you all to listen to me describing who all these guys are and what they're doing following a lunatic like St. Biff. Oh, that'd be an absolute treat. I think you should definitely do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. That wouldn't be a sufferance. We're going to be running a little bit of a Necromunda campaign um, at some point. So they're all going to be ready and waiting for that to happen. And then I'll be able to move on to my next project, which you and folks will be. Yeah, you will be catching wind of um, because I think it's going to be the case. I'm going to encourage some of you fine peoples out there that might have, you know, plucked up enough courage to contact the two people who are speaking to you right now. Maybe one of you brave souls can tell me which of these three choices I'm going to be choosing for my next project. A uh, mini poll, I like that, yeah. A mini poll, that's exactly what it will be called. <laughs> but that'll be, that'll be, maybe, maybe that'll be included in episode 10. Who knows? The episode yeah. 10. We'll have some news for you folks about episode 10 at the end of this podcast. Yes. Won't we, we Burlock? We will, keep your eyes peeled. And, and your ears shriven. Keep your ears yeah. shriven. <laughs> Do that very thing. I think our rambling about hobby journals and shriven ears and peeled eyes has come to the end of its road for now, because we bring to you today a very sad and solemn fact. For this month, on August the 10th there, a very proud and wonderful, very enjoyable, complex, beautiful, thematic, quite original game died. It died its sorry, actual, true death as well. If any of you are in the know about this particular game franchise, we're going to be talking briefly about Guild Ball, which was sadly passed on. Um, and then we're going to have a wider discussion um, about, the, about the death of a game. Yeah, about engine kill and 
Mm, the, collateral, the collateral damage, I think, that happens as a result of said thing. Because, yeah, it was, um, it was some sad news about Guild Ball. Um, I'd known a lot of the miniatures in my time. Yeah. I've seen a lot of them um, knocking around online. I've seen some in your very cabinet there, Grumsworth, as well. Um, there are some in my very cabinet. And, That's quite true. And so with the familiarity of the miniatures, um, I did feel like I knew the game a little. Not intimately. Yeah. Um, I yeah. never got a chance to play, sadly. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I was, yeah, I was disheartened to, to hear of its, of its passing, of its demise. What, is, what was your brief experience of Guild Ball there, Grumsworth? So I would like to start by saying I think it, it is really sad that, that Guild Ball has, has finally come to the end of its run there. Hmm. Um, the reason we know this is because quite bravely, I think, um, the company that produced it, they they said as much, didn't they? They yeah, said Steamforged, Steam wasn't it? Steamforged. Steamforged. That's mm. correct. Yeah, yeah. They basically said, you know, we've 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 done as much as we can with this game. There's quite a lot of complexities that lead it to being maybe a project that would be very very difficult to push onwards beyond the point that it's already at. Mm. Um, but I can speak to the game being I, I played. I don't know, maybe a fistful of games with it. Um, soaked up all its lore which was really, really good. It had quite an original feel to it, really nicely written, um, illustrated also. It was, a, it was a game that had a lot of weight, a lot of work had gone into it. And mechanically as well, the game played like a dream. Um, I think if any of you out there listening have played Guild Ball, you'll you kind of understand how, how technical the game was, how strategic it was for for a game that was essentially a very, very small skirmish game, you know, often four, five or six models. Um, you, you had character cards for all them, replete with all sorts of interesting um, actions and reactions they could take. Essentially, you were trying to get the ball up the other end of the field um, to score goals. The teams often would end up bludgeoning each other to, to get through their lines to score these goals. But it was it was a very tight, really well made, really complex, quite easy to learn game. But then to sort of achieve any great skill at it um, and tournament success, because it was really balanced to play as a competitive tournament game. To do well in that situation, you you really had to go hard at it. You really had to learn the play style of your particular team. You had to learn. The teams you might be competing against there was quite a strong quite um sort of iron forged really locked in meta at the very top tables that's interesting to know was that mm. do you think that was quite a high barrier to entry then i do i think that's almost that's almost the situation that caused the um company to come to the decision that they weren't going to push it any further mm, yeah. um, because it wasn't like a barrier to entry. You, you could play it at a sort of like um, a sort of a beer and pretzels, a night in your mate's kitchen games, that yeah. sort of thing. You yeah. could do that really well. And, and, it, and it worked really well for that as well. But if you were trying to take your team to a tournament, it, it was almost like playing a different game. The meta was so dictated so much of what you needed to bring uh, and the style that you needed to play in. And I think the company kind of almost, I'm not going to say writ themselves into a corner because they could have done a reissue. They could have rebalanced everything. 
But uh, I think they were really proud of what they had achieved with this complex, exciting and interesting game. Yeah, rightly so. Very rightly so. You know, as I say, I haven't had the opportunity to play any games of Guild Ball or any at all. But um, one thing I did really enjoy about looking at it was the artwork and um i read some yeah. of the some of the background about some of the guilds etc and yeah, it yeah. did seem to have been nurtured you know i believe it started as a kickstarter didn't it i think um, it did yeah um yeah. and it it gained some traction within the community and it done really really well and um it was the artwork for me that i saw and i thought wow that, they look really cool let me let me yeah, read about really this good. a little bit and so yeah. that's what that's what brought me in so it's that's what i think i'm sad, most sad about is that it was obviously a lot of work. I think you mentioned it earlier. There's an awful lot of work went into it. And as someone who, you know, has created certain things from time to time and, you know, helped other people create things, I know I can sort of, I can understand how much work goes into it. And I think on the release they brought out on the 10th of August, I think some of the developers all chipped in on this particular article to say a thing or two about it and about their experiences, which was nice, but sad to to read, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it was... I think it was the right call because I, I think they, I, I think it would have, it would have sat ill, I think, with the community at large if they had said, right, the game has got to this stage, we're going to rewrite it all. Yeah. I don't think that would have gone down well at all. There will still be people playing Guild Ball, you know, at their local clubs and yeah. things like this. Yeah. The company is just not going to support it anymore. They're not going to be issuing updates, errata, new miniatures new law, anything like that. I hope they go on to create something else because I think what they did was a, a stellar piece of work. You know, as, as a team, yeah. they clearly work well with each other and the, the, the talent at their disposal clearly is good enough to make a game of that calibre. Yeah, I do hope to see something more coming from them in, in the future, for sure. I think we will do. I think we will do. But this conversation is not specifically about Guild Ball, although that's kind of a, a good flashpoint for it. Yeah, what we're going to have a little ramble about now is is when games reach the point of of their death of their end and there's quite a few examples actually out there yeah um, there's there probably hundreds thousands of examples out there actually of games that didn't make it um beyond kickstarter stage or didn't make it at all but certainly some games that um become firm favorites of people's um and can be can be quite you know were quite pioneering in their early days or whatever it might yeah, be yeah they, those games those games that can be considered stalwarts of the um, community or of the uh, industry mm. they can come to an end as easily as any other game i think um okay. i mean some examples of or an, an example for me um um a game like um rack and confrontation uh, created by, mm. by Rackham. um and these guys came along in the sort of the, the, the you know towards before resin casting of miniatures was uh, as popular as it is now. I mean, everything seems to be made in resin these days. Um, so these guys came along when metal miniatures were still being produced on mass, um, and the uh, the quality of their game, their artwork, their studio painters. I believe they were mostly based in France. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they they became quite popular quite quickly actually, and. Um, I they were it. yeah when they came when they they've been, they've been around for a, a long while but when they started to gain a little bit of popularity over over here in the uk they were known for a lot of their studio work and how good the quality of their their artwork was i think a lot of the artwork yeah. was done by paul bonner who's a, a fantastic artist done a lot of stuff i like think that. you're right yeah yeah and so that really helped to capture the uh, the immersive world of of uh, the confrontation universe 
Um, other games were produced later on. They moved into plastics towards the uh, the end of their company's they did, time. Didn't they? You're right. Yeah. They yeah. even tried some pre-painted stuff, which they released as kits. So they, I think they tried a lot of things that they could, you know, to, to sort of bring themselves back in and keep themselves in the market. But I think so many other companies were riding that wave of um, quick skirmish-based style play, um, cheap and good quality resin. Um, that became sort of more the, 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 the thing, more the flavor. So a company like, um, like Rackham there with their game confrontation, you had the Midnight Dwarves, you had the, uh, the Alchemists of Durs, you had the Lions of Allahand, the beautiful miniatures, really, really lovely models. Um, but they sadly came, came crashing to an end as well. Um, and it was yeah. purely a... Uh, Why was to... that? What was, the, what was the catalyst for their death? I didn't have my finger on the pulse um, when it came to to that company you know dying out i think i think really what they've done is they changed their position and this is only speculation but i think they changed their position cool. too much they went from being a quite a luxury elite looking quite expensive metal miniatures company with some uh, you know with a very talented studio team behind them and they tried to commercialize a bit too quickly i think oh um, okay yeah so maybe yeah so i think i think there might have been some um some business decisions that were made you know, with all the best in, uh, intention, but perhaps didn't have the confidence of their customers. I think that could be an issue with, with what they had, but don't quote me on that. But I think that's probably, that's how I felt about it, to be sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. that sounds that sounds kind of like how some of these things end sometimes. Hmm. I do seem to remember that it was the case. I remember first seeing some um, confrontation, uh, actual games being played. Um, and I was stunned by how good the miniatures were. Like you say, yeah. they were very high-end, very luxury-looking products. Yeah. Almost almost like leagues ahead, style-wise and quality. Um, the scale was really nicely laid out. It was quite different to everything else that was about at the time. Mm. But then slowly, people sort of got on board with this and thought, these guys are doing well with this. This is making sense. I think we need to make something that is in a similar vein, but with cheaper materials, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, I think they were sort of haggled out of the marketplace. Maybe that could be potentially what it was. Yeah. Perhaps there was just too much competition. Yeah. Or offering very similar products. But they were quite, they were quite innovative, weren't they? I think they, oh, yeah, they pioneering for sure. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With their miniature design and a lot of their. Um, their art direction that really captured a, a small world with a big heart. And I think that there was lots of other companies out there doing, you know, cottoned on, as you say, cottoned onto that idea. Yeah. And I think their so. own thing. They slipped Sad. away. They must have withered away in the night, right? <laughs> and, and who did that? Who famously did that, Burlock? Yes, it was Theodred. Theodred himself, old Grima Worm Tongue, who delivered the news. <laughs> you know it. You know it. So, so consider us your Grima worm tongues for this episode. Yeah, so I, I really, I remember Confrontation really fondly. I'd seen it played. I had seen these miniatures, um, pictures of their insane paint jobs painted oh. online. You know, absolutely incredible looking things. Mm. And then when it came, like, I thought, okay, I can get on board with this. They're really expensive, but they look really worth it. And the game system looks superb. And when I wander in, all my coins falling out on my grubby hands, nothing on the shelves. 
your independent war game stores just stopped stocking it anymore. It did. Very sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, other, have you got any other miniature companies that spring to mind that might maybe have met a similar fate? Yeah, I have one that I will use as a sort of anecdotal beat stick for all sorts of different things. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they they go under the name of, or they went under the name rather, of Spartan Games, uh, a UK-based company, um, who created the rules and miniatures, and it was a game called Firestorm Armada. Really, really superb models, in my opinion. Quite kind of basic in their way. They were made of resin. They were in quite a large scale, which was I found really compelling and unusual for a, a space battlefield, a space naval sort of situation. These miniatures were, most of them were the sort of size of a 35mm uh, tank or something. You know, mm. these were large pieces, which was which is really nice. The game looked superb because the models had uh, quite a unique look about them, scale and the design of them. Some of them were a little bit blocky and a bit, I don't know, maybe slightly uninspiring. But they fit really well for a for a big old battle cruiser, or a dreadnought, or some other large space going vehicle. The game system itself was quite easy to get to grips with. Um, it wasn't revolutionary, I wouldn't say, but it was nicely done. Um, it, it got you playing very quickly. It felt very immersive for again for for a, for a game set in the void there. Yeah. A lot was made of ships slowly being stripped down um, by massive amounts of firepower. The, the sort of effects of shields buckling under the weight of impacts, yeah. um, point, point defense systems being stripped away until you get to the armor plating, which slowly was shed as these proud ships continued to kind of duel each other. Yeah, it's Almost quite compelling, isn't it? Quite compelling indeed. Very. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was. And there was a nice amount of um, fluff, sort of narrative stuff behind it. Um, it wasn't as massive as a game that may have gone on for, you know, that had the history, the storied history, say, of something like Battlefleet Gothic. It was evocative of void combat, and I think mm. they did really well with it. Sadly, and, and it had a decent-sized player base. Um, there, there, were, there were some regular tournaments, Although the game was famously, there was very little effort made to balance it, right? Which was a, a, a very vocal part of the community were really quite unhappy with this. There was a lot of uh, community-made modifications to the game itself, which people would often run. It was quite interactive, you know? Spartan had a nice kind of, well, actually, I was going to say they had a nice rapport with their player community. No, it's not <laughs> quite right, actually. They had, it yeah, was very love-hate. Yeah, yeah. So the community was very engaged, for good or bad. And it, it made the game a, a really exciting, kind of ever-evolving... Yeah, so it, it, for me, it had everything that I wanted from a tabletop game, in as much as it was quite unique-looking. It, it played really quite smoothly. It was sort of supported right down to the hilt. You know, there was constant... Um, adjustments being made, although almost with no aim to balance it, just to continue to make it fresh and fun and enjoyable. Sadly, what it was, was a game that was um, under the Aegis of Spartan Games. 
they, they folded up, I would say, probably about three, maybe even now four years ago, I think, yeah. was when they, they finally said, we, we're not trading anymore. Uh, they actually sold the IP for um, Firestorm Armada and the ground version set in the same universe. I believe they were sold to Wayland Games. I think the, the, the sort of the, the little seed of, of all of that work still exists in some form, whether we'll see anything germinate from it, grow of it. Remains to be seen, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a swathe of games that we could go and give examples of. Um, yeah. Rackham, as we say, uh, Firestorm Armada there, Warhammer, um, you know, and, and a lot of the specialist games mm -hmm. that went, went along with that. Um, yeah. Warhammer Quest, you know, that obviously that, got, that, got, that did get remade in a different form. It did. Yeah. Uh, which we'll probably talk about Gorkamorka, Battlefleet Gothic. You mentioned that already. Yeah. Um, so there's a swathe of specialist games that had a big following and do still yeah. have a big following, actually. Um, but and I think as a as individual gamers and how it affects yeah. us, um, you know, not only is it very sad when a game that you have invested a lot of money and time into, uh, because of course with miniature based war games, you have to do a lot of spend a lot of time. Painting, yeah. building the miniatures, etc., and thinking which we love. Yeah, and for me and you, thinking about these uh, these these projects takes up time. There's we've done many podcasts now talking about our, how we plan out our ideas and thoughts. Oh yeah, we we like to do a bit of planning, a lot of it actually, yeah, and exactly. a lot of thinking as well. Not too much thinking sometimes, but yeah, that's right. when these games then come to an end and they mm. are pulled from the shelves. There's almost a, a little bit of um, betrayal that you feel, isn't there? Uh, how could you do this to me? All, all the money I've spent, all the time I've invested in this, uh, you know, how could you? That's the, and that's that's very often the immediate emotional response I think we get as 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 people to most things. But as gamers, when we you know when we've got our when we have our hobbies pulled out from under our feet, especially if they happen oh. very quickly, you know, <laughs> and all, almost come out of nowhere seemingly. It can be very difficult to, to handle, can't it? It can. It can. I think that's it, it's something that you have to experience it a little bit to know yeah. quite how it feels. I think there are an awful lot of people that I mean, this is old news now, so we're not going to dig into the grubby, seedy underbelly of it all. But when Warhammer Fantasy Battles finally met its its last death the the community flare-up was incredible wasn't it, it was enormous you know, yeah because because this was a game that we had many of us had put together very large armies for and had played through edition after edition slight rule changes were made the way we played the game changed mm. which was fine because you always expect games after a while especially from g-dubs there to be updated and evolved and changed that's their yeah. model that's how that they work that. Mm. what you do not expect is a game almost out of the blue to just be concluded with with a piece of story and a few games played on a table in some remote games workshop yeah. and, and it's like yeah now all of that that has gone before we're no longer going to support that we're not going to carry that on and you probably need to buy into our new version of the game. Yeah. Now, like I say, we're not going to go into that too much because that's that's now old news, and you can find the death of Warhammer Fantasy Spells on any website about wargaming under the sun. 
and find as many but, different opinions as you'd like as well. There'll be plenty of them out absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. But but it, but it is a good example for a really hardcore death of a very very large storied game that people will have invested an unfathomable amount of time and money yeah. and effort into that yeah. just suddenly was not going to be supported anymore. And as you say, the rug is pulled out from under you. What I mean, obviously, obviously, we 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 have lived through that sorry time. Um, and played plenty of games of fantasy battle before that happened. Yeah, and um, in fact, since then as well, to be fair. So <laughs> so this was just what I was going to say. But so just because a company stops supporting a game, it's not bringing out new miniatures, it's not updating the rules, you mm. can no longer get hold of the, um, the paper editions of the rule books and such like this. These games still have a life, don't they, Burlock? They, they truly do. Yeah. There is a very large, for a lot of these games, there is a very large burgeoning, um, very invested community uh, that, that travels along this game's lifespan. Um, yeah. So it's not just a physical um, company that creates a bunch of books and, you know, creates a bunch of miniatures and puts them out on the shelves of the shops. That happens for sure. But there's also the people that play those games, all right? And they don't go anywhere, do they? Um, they they um, can sometimes continue to carry the torch for certain games well after they've gone, well after they've disappeared into nothing. An example I can give you of that is with Warhammer, actually going back to that, there was a, um, a sixth edition, which is often hailed as the best edition of Warhammer to have been written. Certainly a the most prime cut. Yeah. A prime cut, probably its best version out there. There was a, a, a very well-organized tournament scene for the sixth edition Warhammer. And there, there are multiple Facebook groups and um, Instagram pages and you name it about there dedicated to the sixth edition Warhammer. So it's not just the game Warhammer itself that has gone, but there's obviously every edition that Warhammer had from first edition right the way up to, um, to eighth edition. And even at the end of eighth edition, once the uh, game had been declared deceased, there was a very large, very vocal, very well-equipped community mm. force that developed the ninth age which massively community driven just as this little six edition tournament group was as well which i very happily very eagerly went along to play some games and this is you know many many years after <laughs> after warhammer had died yeah. um so there's a community that that comes along with this game grows along with this game develops along with it but will still continue to, to play that game after it's been officially pronounced dead officially pronounced dead exactly exactly yeah um and i think you know there are certain companies that can't come back from those kind of situations because there's often a backlash there's often a, a certain amount of distrust yeah that lingers yeah definitely after a situation like that certain companies gw is an example um, games workshop mm -hmm. there i think they can they've weathered the storm well enough you know there yeah. are rumors of um warhammer perhaps seeing a return in its old there are, basis. There are. So, you know, I think what I'm trying to get at here is with enough community force behind certain ideas, behind certain play styles or editions, and with enough passion behind some mm. of these older games, perhaps some of these larger companies can indeed see um, a turnaround of opinion or a change of a change of heart as the IP of Firestorm Armada there was sold on. Perhaps we'll see a yeah. resurgence for that as well. I'd love it if we did. 
So, yeah, but I mean, it's not just uh, physical war games that can, uh, can meet their grisly end. It's not. It's not. Sadly, I think actually the, the death of a digital game is probably a lot more sound and complete, isn't it? A lot more final, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a uh, many of us that, that indulge. I'm sure you'll come along with me on this, Burlock. And many of you viewers and listeners will as well. Many of us that indulge in our war games um, and our board games and stuff out on a table will like to have a little dabble around with some digital versions. We will. We'll, we'll, we'll like to while away some of those times where it's difficult to get your brushes out and to find an opponent to play and even to stomach rolling some dice after a week of rolling anything three or under. You know, <laughs> it's just like, okay, right. So now I'm just going to turn the PC on or crank up my console. It's all there. The death of a digital game can often be absolute. If a company stops supporting it and you have no physical version of the game, you don't own any discs for it. If a company decides to shut down the online servers that it runs on, you might be able to find people who are running their own private servers, but often these will be pale shadows. So I would really like to bring up uh, a particular favorite of mine, uh, a game that I played an awful lot of, I didn't play it till its very sad end, um, but I remember leaving it as, as it was becoming less populated, um, which is the sure sign of the, the sinking ship there. And the sinking ship in question was a game called Wildstar, which was a fine looking MMO. Yeah, it just, it, it did well for a few years. It switched to a free to play rather than a subscription model as was the style at the time. So it moved on with it. It continued to receive balancing, support, um, expansions, this sort of thing. Mechanically very interesting. Yeah. You know, the aesthetic for it was quite unique. Um, all round, I would say it was a really kind of winning project. It was, it was in a market that was saturated with things similar to it, but at its very birth, it did everything kind of better than most of its competitors. As time went on, that began to change. And so Wildstar actually suffered complete and fatal death. I believe it wasn't too long ago, actually, when the last servers were just unplugged um, and, and that game vanished. So that's where it's so complete and total compared to going back and playing a game of sixth edition Warhammer, um, where, where if you can find players and you have the rules and you have the models, then you can play that game, that edition, your favorite version of the game until the very end of time. You've got those yeah, physical, right. tangible things in your hands. But when it comes to a digital game, you don't have any of that. Um, not anymore. No. It used to no. be that you had a CD. Yeah, that's right. Play. But even then, if the game itself is run on a server, and there is no way of playing those, as you say, there are potentially the possibilities of private servers, private yeah. servers somewhere, yeah, yeah. but they're yeah. going to be totally out of whack. There's going to be very few people on them. Um, often they're complex to get. Uh, get into um so it requires uh, so much more effort than just yeah play on your on your machine really when it comes to tabletop war gaming all is not lost is it all is all is not lost it's almost <laughs> never lost i mean i bet if if you search hard enough or if you feel the need to do so yourself you can probably find or bring into life uh, a community for any of these 
um, so-called dead and deceased games. You can probably go and find people somewhere, some dark corner of the world, mm. playing confrontation. Probably it was a very solid game. Yeah. When it comes to Wildstar and the, the digital games, I mean, I never never played Wildstar. But I heard you talk about it an awful lot, though, Grumsworth. Yeah. Um, yeah, really and you've you spoken it. very fondly of it, so it, it, it's a shame that I never had a chance to to play that that game. I could play a game of Firestorm Armada with you tomorrow. I would, I would love you to do that as well. I've got all the miniatures, all the rules. <laughs> Be perfect, but I could mm. never, sadly, now play a game of Wildstar, even if I wanted to. Oh. I might be able to watch some videos on YouTube. Would you be it. sad? Would that they'd yeah. just make you sad? It would, so I won't bother doing that. <laughs> we have an interesting digital case that we can speak about here, don't we? Hmm. Um, a, a game that we've both played for a decent amount of years now. It's had its head cut from it, hasn't it? I like to think but, of it more of a limb. But I, I think quite optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I think its head has been rudely. Very, abruptly. very, very abruptly taken from its body. Mm. The interesting thing is the body is still stumbling around, isn't it? Kind uh, of upright as well. Yeah, for but, sure. So pretty what, solid legs. <laughs> solid legs, which is, that's what you need, right? What is it that we're talking about here, Burlock? Heroes of the Storm. That's right. <laughs> Heroes Pops. of the Storm. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, a MOBA, which is a, is it a multiplayer online battle arena? That, That's that exactly the, right. Yeah, you've got it locked in, Burlock. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, so so we played Heroes of the Storm um, in the, the the ranked mode and all of the all of the modes available. There's it's it's kind of a it, it really is kind of a classic MOBA. Um, there's a there's a big wealth of characters. Um, there used to be a burgeoning tournament scene. Mm, um, with yeah. sponsorships, official teams, prize money, um, endless community support. And it, this particular game is produced and maintained by Blizzard, um, who, for better or worse, decided that this game needed to go into what they laughably call maintenance mode. Yeah, so the, rightly there was a big competitive scene. Um, very professionally done, in my opinion. The, very, the, yeah. The esports the e scene these days is huge. There are yeah. bars and pubs all around the country now called esports bars that will um, show a lot of the um, the esports e that goes on um, with lots of different styles of games, Blizzard Activision included, which is the likes of Overwatch, um, the, World, or the World of Warcraft Arena matches, for example. Mm -hmm. A lot of these places will show these. So the esports scene is is big and it's still growing. But what happened with Heroes of the Storm, all of a sudden, some of the casters, I think, uh, for, the, for these esports shows, some of the pundits involved put out some tweets saying, um, have you heard the news? Uh, Blizzard have decided to cancel all the esports support, all the competitive play support for Heroes of the Storm. Yeah, I think that's, that's how we learnt yeah. as, as a world that it was happening. Mm. Uh, some decisions were made at some very high level, no doubt, that this game was no longer um, financially viable to continue supporting in this fashion. Um, so people were laid off. Uh, Esports teams suddenly had no prize money to play for. So sponsors. They lost their sponsorship, left. yeah. Um, so it, this was one of those things. That this, this affected people's livelihoods as well. And, and, what actually, and, and the community obviously went into rage mode, didn't they? 
They, yeah. uh, there were an awful lot of people really flipping out over it. And even, I would say, people on the level that we play the game and enjoy it, we were suddenly like, okay, so we were hoping to have a new character released every two or three months and constant balances um, and adjustments made to the game to keep it fresh and enjoyable and competitive. This doesn't appear that they're interested in doing this anymore for us. And, and the game felt at the time very, very strong and healthy, very vibrant. The esports scene for it was really decent, well um, covered by the media and things like this. So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was an unusual death wasn't it? And very out of the blue. It came as such a shock that I think as some of the points we've raised already, what they, they were all caused to call into question. It was the, the trust yeah. in the company. It was the betrayal that a lot of the teams felt. It was yeah. the, uh, the backlash that the community were then giving to the, uh, to, to Blizzard, um, Blizzard Activision as they're now known. And it was a matter of saying, well, is this the end of the game? Uh, is this just the end of the esports? What is it you're doing with this? Yeah. There was no confidence all of a sudden, as far as I was concerned. There was no None confidence. at all. Nothing. Um, no. I stopped playing for a little while afterwards. I'm now playing a game. I think it's still a good game to play. Um, yeah. But I think yeah. there was a long period of time where people were so unsure about what was You just didn't happening. want to touch it. Yeah. They were like, well, I'm not going to invest any more time into this. Um, and it, it is a free-to-play game. Don't get me wrong. So it's not it as is. if there was a huge expenditure for people. Yeah, so it was an odd one, and a lot of the casters that were, did a very, very good job, um, you know, casting all the esports stuff. A lot of those were just as in the dark as a lot of the uh, everyday Joes like us were. Yeah. So it didn't really make a lot of sense, did it? It didn't. For the purposes of our conversation here, it it, it is the case that this was this was a, a quick and fairly um, fairly deep reaching cut to the throat death of the game wasn't it yeah it, yeah it, was. it, 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 it appeared like you know you, you take out the very top tier of players you take out um, the prize pool and the coverage for it and you're left with a game which is under the dubious um protection of maintenance mode um which which kind of actually it turns out because we're a couple of years down the road now aren't we yeah actually yeah really? time has passed fairly swiftly since then time, time has passed the game still receives some balancing changes there's still evidently a small team working to keep the blood pumping around the headless yeah. body and the game just seemed to be whilst it's in maintenance mode as you say it is in maintenance mode from my experience it's still getting patches you know there's balancing patches released yeah yeah, yeah, quite quite regularly actually. So that's the odd thing about this particular game, Death, is that yeah. it doesn't it isn't quite dead. You've still got a game that's off being operated and being being um, the servers are still live. Yeah. So it's in that weird sort of limbo stage, and it appears undeath. coming out the other. Yeah, perhaps it's it's in a state of undeath. Mm. It appears to be um, there could be you know new tournaments brought out for it soon there seems to be a little bit of community yeah. support going back into it so there seems to be a little bit of traction being built back into the game again but purely from a community side who knows what the future holds for a game like heroes of the storm but for for what it's worth i i do still play it and i still quite enjoy it for what it is um it's just a shame it doesn't get the proper support that it deserves 
That's right. I think, yeah, yeah. And I think you mentioned a really decent point there with the fact that it is obviously Blizzard are still looking after it somewhat, a little, you know, a small team of people keeping it ticking over. It does make them some money because there are microtransactions involved, you know, yeah. small cosmetic purchases that a player can make. So there must still be some value in having those servers still running and healthy and good and employing the small team that they do. I think, as you say, the community are driving a lot of the sort of continued life support for this ailing game, um, you know, setting up their, their sort of own homebrew tournaments, gathering prize pools together, you know, paying for casters and old experienced, well-loved faces, names in the game, uh, still dip in time to time. Yeah. So, so there, there is still quite a strong community, even to a game which the company who produces and manages it have said, we're not really keeping an eye on this anymore. We're, we're leaving it out there for you to, to use as you wish and enjoy. And myself, again, like I still enjoy playing it. Um, but I do fear that one day it might suffer the same fate that Beloved Wild started. Yeah. One day those servers, you know, with their glowing little dials and buttons, lamps, lights, little mechanical cogs and stuff like that, you know, they're, they're gently disconnected and left to gather dust. Repurposed for the great machine. Repurposed. Welcome <laughs> to the machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, take heart, though, all you wonderful listeners. Um, don't be uh, morbid and distressed at this sad tale of game death. Um, for all of you are as old school as we are, I'm sure, and you have vast swathes of miniatures at your disposal, reams and reams of old rule books that you can grab and play with all your eager friends. So um, yeah, be, be heartened by that. As, as, as tabletop war gamers and tabletop gamers in general, we like the tangible and the real as much as we like the digital. <laughs> we do. We, we, we like a bit of both, certainly. It's, it's you know, what do they say? It's, I was going to say moderation in all things, but, but I, I'm not sure I believe that, really. I, a bit of excessive gift from time to time, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> the palace of wisdom lies there, right, Burlock? Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's palace right. Wisdom. Hello once more, Burlock. Welcome back, everyone, um, to the most notable segment of this entire fine endeavour, where the magic happens, where myself and Burlock there are going to take a listener slash viewer suggested card from the collectible card game Magic the Gathering, um, and we're going to deconstruct it before your very eyes. Yeah. We're going to take it to pieces. We're going to have a little look at how it works within the game. We're going to investigate the artwork, general ramble. There'll probably be a funny voice doing a little bit of flavour text about it right towards the end. Burlock. Ramble. Yes. yes. So uh, this is um, courtesy of Terry T, is it not? It is. It is courtesy of Terry T, um, um, who has selected something wonderful for us, isn't he? Yeah, this is, is a green chap, a green card here. Um, and he costs four mana, three colourless or three generic, and one green. Um, he's a creature, a spider. He's an uncommon card from the Born of the Gods um, set, which was the third uh, release of the um, Theros range. 
Yeah, which which was a block that was loosely based on a lot of Greek kind of classical mythology. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah, it was. Yeah, lovely set, lots of enchantment creatures and all sorts. But this okay. this chap, yeah, a creature. He's a spider. He's quite a, a lovely looking thing. I think. I think he's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it might be a lady spider. It's brought right. to us by Richard Wright, or painted for Wizards of the Coast, should I say, by Richard Wright. Um, and. Richard there has done a he's done a fine piece of work. I know we say this about almost every card that we get in this section, um, but that is because I, I think there's something to be enjoyed about the art in almost all of these cards. You just need to know where to look, right? So, so obviously we've got a big old spider here. It's given some of its dimension, its scale, by the surrounding trees. Do you think they're burlock? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first saw this, I I didn't quite see that they were actually trees, but I think they are. This is sort of the edge of a forest, isn't it? Almost. I think so. Yeah. This this um this grave robber spider there is coming back to its lair, its home from from the sunny, bright, beautiful outside world, back to its web kind of cloaked little den, isn't it? Yeah, it looks quite comfortable down in this dark area, this dark, dark pit or this dark yep. passageway with his web, um, you know, marking that area. It, I, I quite like how the, um, the light, bright blue sky is very small in comparison to the rest of the portrait, to the rest of the composition. Yeah, um, yeah. I, think that, I think that helps exaggerate or give scale the background of this picture, this, this blue sky and this very hazy looking sort of summer's day it's almost being blotted out as far as our point of view is concerned by the size of this spider. Yeah. So this, this is, this is not an insignificant arachnid and that is also reflected in the stats as well. So we can gauge this creature's size. I think this is an interesting one, um, kind of color wise, uh, the composition of the picture, I mean, because we've got like a really nice, we've got some good contrast between the very dark, green, grey, slightly desaturated areas of its sort of surrounds. The spider itself still quite kind of hazy around its kind of rear portions and its mm. legs. Yeah. The only thing in real sharp focus are these sort of little claw-like appendages on the end of its front legs there. And also some of the undergrowth right close to us, which is catching an errant beam of sunlight, isn't it? Yeah, I quite like how he is, despite the fact that his legs are coming over the, the area of, of, of light, for instance, or safety, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that he's sort of enveloped that with all his little legs, that's quite an imposing pose, like a, quite a frightening pose for the spider to be in. But I do feel yeah. there's not a great deal of threat from the palette, from the picture itself, because it seems quite bright. It's not particularly frightening. Um, I know what you mean. I think that's reinforced a little bit by the fact that we've got no, we've got no gory detail here, despite yeah. the fact that this is a grave robber spider. It's not hauling around corpses in its mm. little webs or in its claws or anything like this. We've got nothing, nothing suggestive of that. The spider itself also kind of looks slightly cuddly. Do you think? It, <laughs> yes. It's kind of, yeah. it looks like it's, it's cloaked in soft brown fur, you know? I mean, obviously this thing would, would actually be a nightmare should you ever encounter one of these in the wild on your travels and such. <laughs> but in this picture, 
I agree. It does not look massively menacing. Um, I think that's quite reflective in its mechanics, which we'll go into a in a little bit. Um, but with regards to sort of the, the general contrast to back that up as well, I think how the, the, the darkness is only on sort of the right hand portion of the picture where yeah. this tunnel or pathway through the forest will lead. But the focus really is on the, the blue sky section outside of, of it behind the spider yeah. yeah yeah i think so also and the spider actually um itself it occupies the kind of warmer piece of the picture doesn't it palette wise mm -hmm. in this kind of like this fuzzy warm brown um we've not got some sort of terrifying looking bemandibled face the artist i think has has put us in mind of something which is just a naturally to be found piece of wildlife in this forest as you might come across a uh, a deer or maybe more threatening wildlife like a bear or something like this mm. but in in a sort of fantastical setting such as this there are many more horrific and obviously threatening looking things that you could find kicking about in a forest aren't there yeah yeah i think um the pincers in the foreground here um are quite interesting i don't quite get them i think they make a bit of sense when you think of them as a grave robber spider um perhaps these spiky appendages will be used to sort of till the soil away to to exhume or yeah, you know, to exhume whatever corpses yeah. he's got yeah. under there or whatever dead creatures he's found or perhaps whatever dead creatures have wandered into his own web um yes, he's just there true. to sort of fish them out and use them for his own for his own use but um, the pincers themselves look unusual yeah i think um i mean they're not completely out of place no but but you would expect to find them maybe more on a scorpion or other kind of arachnid looking thing it's fine yeah. that this yeah. this creature's got pincers i think they do add a point of interest to the spider because otherwise what we've got there is a big brown spid <laughs> haven't we really yeah yeah you know, yeah. it, it, that that's what we're looking at um yeah. so i quite like the artist's decision to to add something slightly different because in in the world of magic the gathering a gigantic spider is not an uncommon thing is it well this particular card is uncommon but no a giant spider isn't i mean i think giant spider actually has been yeah. large in magic since the very since beginning alpha since, yeah it's alpha yeah, I believe actually at one stage they um, they released a little poll to Magic players via their website, I think. Okay. And they were torn between the, the giant spider or uh, or another card for which they should print. And they said, well, we, we can't decide which one we want to keep for this set. So is it going to be this one or is it going to be this one? Both of these cards have yeah. been around for a long, long, long time. And I think that the community chose the spider to stay. So the giant spider Wrong has been, choice. From start to finish, the giant spider's been been in magic. Um, so yeah, it's it's certainly not an unusual sight to see a giant spider like this in in Magic the Gathering. But that so, being said, he's slightly different to your standard uh, giant giant spider, isn't he? He is, he is. And consequently, I think fair enough for whacking a couple of little claws on his front legs. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But also with, with regard to its uh, mechanics, what do you think about those? Yes. So it has, mechanically, it is a very traditional, um, in the Magic Gathering sense, spider. 
isn't it? Mm. So we've got the ability reach on it. Uh, actually, let's talk about its um, its power and its toughness first. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the the two four split there is almost like every other giant spider, isn't it? They they tend to be kind of low on their their power, the damage that they deal, and uh, at the higher end of low with their with their health points, don't they? Yeah, a little bit more defensive in that sense. Yeah. A little bit more defensive, yeah, yeah. Perhaps representing the fact that these creatures are not overly aggressive um, and are good at hiding, good at sheltering, despite their bulk and size, among their chosen habitat. So That's this good. is quite a standard stat line, um, but it's useful mechanically as well mm. because it helps. it helps out having a little bit of health on your side, some toughness about you, if you have the ability reach. So reach allows this creature um, to block creatures that have flying, even though, even though it does not itself. Back in the older sets, that would have been described to you on the card. It, it would have said giant spider um, is able to block creatures as if it had flying. Yeah. Yeah, so, but they, they basically, they crunch that down to the the keyword cool. there reach yeah which makes lovely sense doesn't it you know mm. you can imagine uh, creatures of a uh, arachnid variety being able to in the same way that they can catch flies in our own world you know they can throw their webs large and wide haggle these creatures down out of the air spin them up eat them up as a nourishing meal that's what exactly, reach yeah. does that's why i think the artist's attempt at making this guy look perhaps not as aggressive as some other creatures in in the Theros block have looked as far as their art goes it works quite nicely with this card because it's almost as if he's he's just in the background the spider itself is in the background you know so it's yeah he's he's dangerous if you get too close um yeah, be able yeah. To, you know he's a defensive card so he's almost if he if you've got this spider on the board it's going to be well i don't want to attack into that maybe so <laughs> maybe so yeah very sad that you should, you should never steer away from a spider. I mean, one. I mean, one that big, probably. <laughs> that's, that's my point. Sorry, this big, yeah. certainly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so also, so we've got the reach on there. That's lovely. That's traditional spider work there. Right. We also have this little mechanic here, um, which blends in with its tiny little pincers and its name primarily there. So what we've got is an ability here which you can pay mana to activate um, three colorless um, and a single black, mm -hmm. which as, as astute followers of this, um, of this game have noticed, this is a green card, but the activation of this ability requires um, a little bit of black mana. So what we have here is something that color wise, the black and green there fits into the Golgari bit, doesn't it? The Golgari colour split, yeah. The yeah. colour split, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the black and green, um, which are associated with the kind of um, the natural cycle of birth and death, isn't it? Um, which works well, being as this is a grave robber spider. What this does for us, if we pay this cost, this three colourless and this one black, the grave robber spider gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Activate this ability only once each turn. So what this basically does for us is if your graveyard 
is absolutely littered, loaded with cards, this grave robber spider is going to be, well, it could be absolutely gigantic, couldn't it? It could be it could monstrous. Be. Yeah. If you've got, if you've got, even if you've got one or two cards in your graveyard there, this thing is becoming much, much more defensive mm. and it's getting a little bite um, power damage wise as well. Combined with the fact that it has reach, can block creatures with flying. This actually, you know, when you activate this ability, even early game as well, you, you're getting quite a, quite an astute blocker. Yeah. And as a, if you're going up against a player, fielding this sort of card, you've got to be uh, aware of what's actually in your opponent's graveyard that much more. Because if it catches you out by surprise, there's suddenly there's five, you didn't realize there were five or six creature cards in the graveyard there. This thing can be a lot yeah. bigger than you perhaps thought. So you really got to think yeah. twice about going into fighting into something like this. Yeah, and it works really well in synergy with loads of other Golgari cards that allow you to stock your graveyard, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It synergizes very well, actually. It's, it's certainly been, although thematically it works well uh, as well, this ability with the title of this card. Yeah. Um, I think it has been engineered. It's been created to fit well, hasn't it, with those sort of decks, which I think so. use, use the graveyard as the co kind of the, the core battery for your various effects. Certain dredge decks, for example, or other other, decks, other, yeah. other sort of archetypes that use a lot of the graveyard synergies. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a, a dumping ground for a lot of their, a lot of, it becomes their engine for their deck a lot of the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. a cool card. And you can sort of see where these pincer-like claws come from here, where he's you know, rummaging through the, through the earth to find all the corpses. He shuffles, yeah, he shuffles around with your dead. That's what he does munches them up gets a bit stronger for a turn he does for a bit yeah yeah and so we've got a nice little bit of flavor text as well haven't we on this yeah. as well yeah did, did you want to have a go at reading that in a professional fashion oh of course yeah so it goes on to say here cloaks woven from its webs are durable and waterproof but said to bring on nightmares i knew it i should have abandoned that cloak years ago that <laughs> will be great That'll be the reason I haven't had sleep for the last 20 odd years, you know? Oh, exactly. That, that's not goose down. <laughs> that's it's spider not. web. It's grave robber's spider web. <laughs> Damn it. I'm keeping it. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's quite nice as well, isn't it? Because that, again, this is kind of suggesting a little bit, along with its ability, its grave robbing ability, we'll call it there, that this creature, there, there is something innately sinister about it. Even mm. though when you first play it, you've got your, you're playing it for a, for a standard cost for a spider. But if you whack a little bit of black, a little bit of nasty, a little bit of swampy black color pie edge about it, and it, yeah. his web is going to give you nightmares. I, I, one thing I like about the flavor text, actually, it kind of, it kind of hints that these creatures are quite uh, re replete throughout the land of Theros, that they're used for things like they they're cloaks they yeah. use they use to wait to weave cloaks so as if i'll oh, just you know i'm going to go to the nearest grave robber spider nest and yeah. gather up some web to make me a new cloak which is interesting isn't it it gives you a little bit of flavor for the world perhaps yeah it does yeah yeah so once again we have a card that kind of the art synergizes really well with the mechanics it's been really well thought out um and it, it gives us a little bit of a another uh, another little piece of the world of Theros is, is filled in 
by looking at this card, looking at the artwork there, reading through the flavor text. And again, we're all a little bit wiser to the habits of certain forest dwelling giant spiders on the plain of Theros. And those who wear the cloaks. And those who wear the cloaks. <laughs> Shameful as we are. <laughs> Never knew it. Never knew it. I'll, I'll try. I'll have a little rest this evening without draping that round my shoulders. Oh, very good. I think you'll be much better off. Yeah. Good job, Richard Wright, though. Nice job on the artwork. Excellent work. Yeah. Thanks, Terry. You've given us a fine boon there. Indeed. Yeah. And talking of cloaks and drapery yeah. and oh, drapery yes. falling, perhaps. Um, oh, I believe, no. I do believe it's getting close to that time, isn't it, brother? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think the cloaks are going to fall upon our very heads they're probably they're probably being thrown out in a wild and ungainly manner by our old i was going to say he's our comrade in arms he's not though is he no <laughs> father time is is yet again he's pressing down upon us isn't he he's ringing in the curtain call of this podcast made as it is woven from the webs of the grave robber spider in short guys and girls, we're, we're going to finish up here, aren't we, Burlock? Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah it's been good it, fun. It has been. It's been a treat as always. And I hope anyone who's viewing this or listening to it has enjoyed it, gleaned a bit of useful knowledge. Uh, if nothing else, it has sufficiently filled a little chunk of your life with something vaguely interesting. I hope so. <laughs> I, th I, think it's, I think that's a pretty achievable goal for us, Burlock. Yeah, make something interesting enough to fill a little piece of time do you think we should continue to do this i think we should i think we certainly should yes and um i i honestly hope that plenty more people will come along for the ride as well i hope so it would be a joy to have you all on board so with that in mind if you could do us the honors of liking and subscribing to this channel if you thought this video was a good one hit the bell get the old thumbs up going because yeah, that would yeah. help us greatly. It would. Um, it'd be a huge boon for us. Yeah, it'd, be, it'd really help help to um, buoy our spirits, if anything else. <laughs> That's just what I was going to say. It'd really lift our spirits, right? <laughs> so if you could do that, that would be wonderful. You can find us also on Spotify. Can you presently find us on Player FM? Player FM, yep, Spotify, Player FM. I believe we're on Apple Podcasts now as well. So we should be nice. on all the major major podcasts platforms and outlets for your ears to enjoy but certainly if you if you um would be so kind as to send a little message as Grumsworth said please do please do that'd be lovely yeah we'd like to hear from more of you even if it's just even if you just randomly spit out the name of a magic card you'd like <laughs> us to dissect or if it's the case that you have been a party to or witnessed the death of a game as per our main segment That'd be really interesting to hear about too, because I'm sure that there are lots of games, great and small, that have vanished under the wheels, the tread of time, that we're completely unaware of. Yeah. I'd be over the, over the moon to hear about anybody's experiences or anybody's... Um, <laughs> with the death of a game. With the death of a game, yeah. It'd make, it'd make me feel real good, yeah. But I just know, let us know if you I have anything yeah. uh, interesting. Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll bring it up on, uh, on, on one of our future episodes. We might do, um, we might do. Or you might be treated to us um, throwing out a few comments. So please yeah. be part of so, it. Um, and yeah, keep your eyes peeled do. on the YouTube channel because we're going to be bringing you a few little extra videos as well, aren't we? We are, yeah, yeah. We're going to be um, 
yeah, I don't think we can go. It's, it's a little bit of a secret work at the moment, but you might you might hear something interesting from us. Yeah. Maybe around about the middle of the week, maybe. We're, 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 we're coming up to the 10th episode, aren't we, of this? Mm. Uh, and we would, we're, <laughs> we're the sort of people who will mark any sort of occasion that we possibly can. So 10 might be something slightly different for it, might there? We'll be raising, we'll be raising more than a toast for episode 10. So please join us for that. Um, I'm going to bid you all uh, a fond farewell. Hope you've enjoyed this. Um, and I think now... It's time for Master Burlock to take us all home with a fine quote that he has selected for us and he's going to perform for us. Perform indeed. Well, I should bid you all farewell. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Gromsworth. And uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. And I shall leave you with this short passage. Only the insane have strength enough to prosper. Only those who prosper may truly judge what is sane. You've been listening to The Preamble. Find us on YouTube, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. And if you want to contact us, just send an email to thepreamble at gmail.com or find us at The Preamble on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Your hosts were Brumsworth and Burlock, brought to you by robesgaming.com. Special thanks to our contributors, our spotlight artist, and of course, to all of you. See you next time.